Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Anthony Shim, an actor and filmmaker who's been having a pretty good run lately. After winning the Platform Prize at TIFF last year, his second feature, Rice Boy Sleeps, went on to take the Toronto Film Critics Association's Rogers Best Canadian Film Award, and now it's charging towards next month's Canadian Screen Awards, where it's nominated for Cinematography, Direction, Original Screenplay, Picture, and Performance in a Leading Role for Choi Sung Yoon. Rice Boy Sleeps is one of the best movies I saw last year, and it's now playing in theaters across Canada and opening at the TIFF Bell Lightbox this Friday, March 24th. You need to see it. Anthony picked Peppermint Candy, the brilliant second feature from South Korean auteur Lee Chang-dong, which opens in 1999 with the miserable young Ho, played by Sol Kyung-gu, throwing himself in front of a train welcoming death, and then rolls backwards through the decades to trace the roots of his despair. It's an ingenious study in missed opportunities, tragic consequences, and the cultural alienation that defines a generation told by a master who was just getting started. So it kind of makes sense that Anthony would tackle it here. This is someone else's movie. I mean, I made everybody watch Peppermint Candy when um, when I started to bring people onto the project. Um, and because, I mean, the reason why I wanted everyone to see it was for multiple reasons. Um, it, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the film is set in the 90s as well. So, so some of the visual references um, were good. But also it's the, it's sort of like how big the emotions can get in the film. And while it can feel really like almost like melodramatic at times and like almost too much, like you just like it, just, it, 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 it teeters on like too much, but it never, it, for me, it never crosses the line and it's so raw. Um, and I wanted people to kind of see a reference of some of the emotions that I wanted to hear, some of the notes I wanted to hit with their film, but you know, and I would tell people peppermint candy is not my favorite film. But it is the most influential film for me as a filmmaker, maybe even as a person, because I think I was 13 or 14 and I, was, I grew up in uh, a place called Coquitlam in BC. Mm-hmm. It's a suburbs and we had, you know, essentially we have an area that's now kind of known as Create Town. Um, and back then you could rent VHS tapes from the Korean grocery store. Right. I don't know how this is not terribly illegal. It's not legal but... at all. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I, I was, I was sort of steeped in it when I was a kid. Cause I was, I'm a little older and there was one place, uh, I, I grew up at Young and Steel's in Toronto, which was going to be sort of Markham became the new yeah. Chinatown North, but it wasn't at the time. Yeah. Uh, it was just sort of starting. And there are all these tiny enclaves where you could get these movies and they were in no way legal. Like as DVD came in, bootlegging got easier, but yeah, transcoded VHS tapes. That's how people discovered these movies. Yeah. And you like these tapes, they would record something new every week. And so, you know, it's had like dozens of different shows on it. And so the quality is so bad, Yeah, but you know, like we would get all these, VHS tapes of like Korean Korean dramas and and like variety shows and whatever whatever else, but then it was these um, film festival film festival hits films by Lee Chang Dong, Park Chan Wook, Bong Joon Ho, uh, Kim Gi like, and those were the movies that would make it back here, and 
you know, my parents, I mean, there's no, there was no posters. There's no trailers. It's literally just a cassette tape with a title written on it with like a marker. Yeah. And so my parents just rented all of them. And so, and there's also no rating. So they don't know, like, is this appropriate for our kids to see or not see? We just watched everything together. And so, you know, I actually watched like, do you ever see the movie? Um, I believe it's called Bad Guy in uh, English. I have like seen King that. Duck. Yeah, it's about yeah, the red I light knew, district. I knew the first one you were going to say was going to be a Kim Ki Duck film because because he had that I little saw that when period. I was like fourteen. Yeah, <laughs> with my parents. <laughs> How did they yeah. take it? I think they were as shocked as anyone else who ever saw that film. You know, and so you know, there's that. So then, like one day, we just we popped this movie, and it was. Peppermint Candy. And the title sounds fun enough. They were like, oh, that's probably appropriate for kids. And let's just, and they were open to us seeing pretty much everything. And so we started watching this thing. And, you know, the opening, not scene, but the, you know, the opening section, the, the prologue, as you know, yeah. is it's the, it's the poster. It's the, it's the suicide. And it was the first time that I'd ever seen suicide portrayed in a movie no it was the first time that made me think about the 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 idea of a person taking their own life and then from for the rest of it um you watch this man go through these emotions that were so foreign to me and it was so jarring and it was terrifying because he was just in so much turmoil throughout the entire film Mm -hmm. um that it really just it completely changed my kind of view on people, about Korean men, about Korea as a country, because that era, that that entire era, the character's about the same age as my dad and, and my uncles. And so, like, all of that era, like, I, he- I had heard, like, loose sort of, like, little stories here and there about their like, experiences in the army at that time or you know, uh, working in various fields. And and you, I got to see it. It was kind of like, you know, being able to see, you know, these like sequences of the city and this world that I, that I had, that I was, that I had experienced with, but it was completely different. Like I, I saw the kid version of that city. Right. And so, yeah, like that movie just, haunted me and then it was i didn't even know that was like a good considered a good movie because i had no frame of reference i had no one to talk to about these things yeah i was right? gonna say like without the context it's just part of a, a a wave of films that you just happen to see exactly yeah um and he made films so infrequently too that you would be like hard pressed to find out when the next one was coming or, and this would have been, I'm assuming just before the internet or just if you were 13, no, you must've grown up with it. So we, we did have internet, but it wasn't really like, uh, it wasn't it, like, we didn't use it for the things we use for, we use it now, you know, mm. like at first it was just like, we're just trying to like learn how to use the email. Um, well, so then like I completely forgot about that movie and then it wasn't really until and then I had seen Oasis as well, which rocks me and rocks me to this day every time I watch it. Um, and it, it really wasn't even until I would say um, Secret Sunshine that I went, oh, my God, like, it's the same guy. 
you know, and that's when I started to go. And then that's when, you know, by that, by the time Secret Sunshine came out, um, cause the, the, the actress, um, she won the, uh, the, the, the best actress award at Cannes that Catherine, year. Right? Yeah. And so there was so much hoopla around the film. And that's when I started to realize, oh, like these films are internationally revered. This filmmaker is really well known. And, and that's when I got deeper and deeper into it. But, you know, it was just one of those things. I just didn't even know what I, what I got myself into until years later. And yeah, I just, there was so much, there's, there's so much from that film that I, that I sort of like intentionally try to like take from into Rice Boy Sleeps. Um, I don't know, I guess, yeah. Whether you want to or not, I, I think it's like, it's pretty hard not to let these influences bleed into what you do yourself, you know? Sure. Well, I'm, I came to, uh, to Lee's films a little later. I don't think I really, I know I saw, uh, green fish possibly at TIFF or just after, um, I either played TIFF or real Asian and I was impressed, but I don't think I was old enough to get it somehow. Like his thing, this, 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 the, the kind of unspoken poetry of people carrying this unimaginable pain with them over their lives, like a weight is so, I, I think I needed to have a rougher time in my life before I really appreciated it. I guess like my first big setback or my first big relationship collapse or anything like that. And so I missed peppermint candy. I didn't catch up to it until much, much later. And after I had seen, I'm sure it was after I had seen Secret Sunshine, it probably was before Burning, but it was just one of those moments where I'm old enough now, this film really resonates with me. And the idea of moving backwards through this accumulation of trauma is still such mm -hmm. an interesting way through it. And he's never mm -hmm. tried it since, which I find really fascinating because that could have become his gimmick and he just didn't right. do that. It's like, nope, I'm not interested. I did it. We're going to go forward. Mm -hmm. I mean, Secret Sunshine and, and Burning all have people in conversation with their pasts in different ways, mm -hmm. but this one there, but they play out in straight lines and this yeah. film just, just keeps displacing us further and further back. And every time I think about it, I think about, uh, young Ho's last words, which are, I want to go back. Yeah. And I don't think he really does. I mean, uh, everything's awful. There was, there was never any joy in his life. He never had a, a thing he would want to go back to. Maybe he's talking about going back and fixing it or going back and living differently. But the ambiguity of that is something in the first 10 minutes, it throws out a line of dialogue that haunts you for the rest of your days. I find that absolutely amazing. And if it had come at the end, if he played it in a linear progression, we would know what he means, right? Like you'd have, yeah. you'd be forming the connection and you'd understand it. And instead it's just so ambiguous and so strange especially after watching this character, watching, watching this man go through this incoherent expression of like, it's, just, it's so unsettling that first 10 minutes, yeah. you're just, you're watching someone grieve things we don't understand and yeah. be incoherent to his friends. Like nobody knows yeah. what to do with him. Nobody knows how to help him. The, um, when, when we, sorry, I'm going to leap up back and forth in time myself, but, uh, when Tiff screened it as part of the, um, uh, the summer and soul program this, this summer just passed, we had That's the right. 4k restoration yeah. and Robin oh, was man. saying like the whole thing is this, um, I actually have her note right here. Cause it's beautiful. Um, it's, uh, 
an end of millennium opus that defines events in Korean history through the story of one man. And I kept seeing it this time through as metaphor. And it's like, well, is, is the shot of all these people trying to have a party on a beach while one person is in screaming misery? Is mm-hmm. that South Korea? Is that all North and South Korea? Is that like, is it a metaphor for the separation? Is it a metaphor for the militarization? And I don't know, but it applies to everything because it's such a simple, clear thing. And then yeah. you watch the pain developing backwards through the rest of the film. And it's just, I have no idea. Cause I saw it when I was in my, at the very earliest, my early forties, I have mm-hmm. no idea what it would be like to, to be hit with that at 13 and just see, you know, a nation that you're connected to reflected that way. I mean, I just kept, I remember watching it and just keep, I kept putting my dad and my uncles in that position. I was going like, is that my, what my dad was? Mm-hmm. Is that what my uncles were? Is that what they experienced? And it, and it completely changed how I looked at them because, you know, all of my complaints and my issues with my own dad, I thought, oh, like it's start, starting to make sense. Like if he really did grow up that way in those types of environments, you know, that could make justify why he is the way he is. I mean, and my dad wasn't like a, a, a terrible person by any means. And it was nothing like the character in the film. Um, but you just see this like, you know, a generation of men in that country became, you know, these were the, the effects of the nation's attempts to move in a certain direction at a rapid, rapid pace, Mm -hmm. Um, which is just, I find so interesting. And, and that opening, yeah, like you're saying, maybe it is. Yeah. Maybe it is like, yeah, there is, there are these people who chose or choosing to celebrate the new millennium, you know, hooray, we've done it. We've gotten this far in these last few decades. And then there's one person who's going, who just cannot cope who cannot shake his past and then yeah and then like you say like he says he wants to go back and you go i always i always took that as like he wants to go back to that moment when he's when he had his innocence still mm-hmm. and wanting to kind of hold on to that innocence but i don't know maybe not or is it like go back to a time when the before when the country was a, in a certain sense simpler yeah, I don't know. I, it's um, it's just yeah, it's endlessly fascinating. And I'm, and I'm such a big fan of those two actors too, the two leads in that. I, I had to go into quarantine in Korea. Um, went into location scouting for Rice with Sleeps, hmm. and I got I just like went into this like deep dive of watching all these interviews with them about of them talking about this film. So it was their first roles. You know, they had never acted before. Um, and anything on like th- it was their first uh, um like feature film debut mm-hmm. um and they talk about the conditions of making that film and just like the amount of insecurity they had and uncertainty and doubt of like am i good enough is this working and you know and and that you know that kind because of, like my lead um uh who played so young and also our little boy noel like n- neither of them have acted before. So I was going like, oh my God, this is the stupidest idea ever. Am I making a huge mistake? But I was like, you know what? Lee Chang Dong cast two of his actors of all the actors they could have cast. They, he went with two unknowns and they are now legends. 
I was like, okay, I think we should, I think we should go for this. <laughs> Just make the best film possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're taking inspiration from directors, there's fewer people you could look to for guidance on this specific type of storytelling. He's, yeah. He's just carved out this space for himself in uh, in world cinema, not just Korean cinema. Is this yeah. this specific to the point where when Burning comes out, everybody knows what to expect somehow um, with that material, with that from through his perspective. But the um, the thing that strikes me is the well, you had mentioned earlier the the emotional swings, the way that people mm-hmm. just sort of explode. That's the thing I think he denies us more often in his later films, like in Secret Sunshine, especially, but also in Burning, where people just, and poetry, I mean, poetry is all about not expressing uh, volatility, right? It's about channeling yeah. it into the poems, into the words. It's the containment that's so disturbing in his in his later work that yeah. to the point where now coming back and seeing this, where people are just screaming agony uh, from the from the jump, from the first five minutes, it's it's shocking in a different way. And I suppose it would have been that for people who'd never experienced uh, Greenfish doesn't have all the Greenfish is much more calmer, I think, in comparison. Yeah. But this is just this howl of pain um, yeah. coming from every direction, right? And and it's all, again, it's the nested structure where we just see how it's stacked up on him. But over the years, over the over the decades and the and each each segment just shows you this guy never had a chance. And if he's supposed to represent the South Korean people in some way, that's an incredibly pessimistic perspective and, and one that doesn't really appear in, in these other films, at least not in the same way. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that, I, I feel, I mean, I've always seen this, that like that character could have been any guy. It could have been any, any, any man in Korea, you know, but it, you know, certain things happened to him, you know, starting with the, 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 his, his part in the, the Gwangju massacre, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you know much about, but it's, it was a horrendous event that was completely covered up for decades. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, um, I only have, I mean, at, at best an outsider's perspective, but yeah, I'm, a, I'm aware of it, but I don't know the scale of it. Yeah. And, and you, you go like, this innocent guy who just joins the military, you know, not even voluntarily because it's enforced and you go to the mm-hmm. army and then you're not even told what you're doing. And then you take part in these, in these things. And, and, and you never really have the space or the opportunity to, to process or heal from it. And it's like, you're just a part of, you're just on that train, you know, living trying to survive in this society. And, and he just kind of goes down this path and, 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 and go, I don't think there's anything about his characteristic. I mean, the only thing we know is that he was a he was quite a sensitive person, you know, initially. But there was nothing about his character that you'd go like, oh, this guy's not gonna make it. He, he just seems like a pretty normal guy. And so, you know, I always took it as that like this just could have happened to anyone. He kind of represents a generation of men, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, untrained unprepared um clearly trying to perform a certain type of authority and then we see it reflected in the next say or in the previous segment i suppose in prayer in 84 four years later right when he's doing his best to be a policeman and just taking it so far so fast to the point where he holds a restaurant hostage effectively uh 
because he can't handle the the position that he has and it's such a clear conflict i mean we're going to jump all over spoiler territory so don't don't worry about it but um it is it's just such a, a clear weight on him that he he's trying to defuse the situation by taking absolute control of it and that he doesn't understand that he's doing it and there's no there's nothing sympathetic in his actions but you can I read them this time through as someone desperately trying to stop himself from committing violence by just trying to scare everybody into listening to him, mm-hmm. which, which again, metaphorically is just so convoluted and messy, but personally is so clear, right? Mm-hmm. Like it just, you, there is no way to misinterpret what he's doing from yeah. the outside. But yeah. I think you have to see it a second time to understand where he's coming from. Each step back provides the context for what we've just seen in a way, which is really an ingenious way of telling the story. Yeah. And is that really like, it's, like a, it's a really long shot. Um, yeah. Unedited of him when he's like torturing the the, the, the one man. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, and he's just in so much anguish and pain and, and, and he's, and he's like abusing this this guy, and and you go and like, oh, this is the moment when he's like he's fighting himself, fighting himself, but he's just like kind of he just goes, I can't fight anymore, and he's the one that actually breaks, right? And it's like, and then from that point on, he just becomes this other person. Like like I think that like that innocent side of him, that person that he, the sensitive, humane side of him, just dies in that in that interrogation. You know, and then from that moment on, you're like, oh, this is how, you know, the it's, it's you know, it's that moment when like Spider-Man becomes Venom, you know, when they separate. <laughs> yeah. It's like he's now this is the moment when he became Venom. And, and now he has to live the rest of his life turmoil. Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about Criterion's stunning restoration of the Joan Crawford classic Mildred Pierce, and how Warner's new 4K set of the Rocky movies illuminates Sylvester Stallone's greatest performance. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Look, this is all I know. Come check it out. And the woman that he's been seeing over and over again, the woman he we now already know he has visited comatose in a hospital, Sunim, is um, is there, and I think it's their one chance really to connect in this segment. And the moment she expresses an, a real interest in him, he he fondles someone else in front of her. Mm-hmm. She's she's telling yeah. him how lovely his hands are and how she's always remembered them, and he immediately puts them on someone else's ass. It's just so self-destructive and so self-negating he's already gone yeah yeah it's interesting you know i i always remembered that that character being a much bigger part of the movie so new yeah but then when i rewatched it a few years ago i was like oh my god she's actually not in the movie that much when it comes to like her stage or um screen presence mm-hmm. it's not that much it's actually the 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 woman that he marries that she, she's actually in the movie a lot more yeah but it 
But I always remember that film to be like for her to be such a big part of the movie and it become it being a film about the two of them. But yeah, it really is like those like few key moments, but somehow her presence is felt so deeply through the entire thing. And rarely like he does not, it's not like he's talking about her. You know, it's not like there's no flashbacks. And like I, that, that is just a filmmaking thing that I'm just so astounded by. Like, I don't know how they, I don't know how Lee Chang Dong did it, but like, it's quite remarkable. And I think a lot of it is on the actors too. I think the actors are just brilliant in, in maintaining that through the entire film. Um, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I actually, because Moon Sori, the actress in that, she's my favorite korean actress um mm -hmm. we, i had actually sent this script over i switched sleeps to her oh man and, yeah and she read it and then i mean and, and she couldn't do it because you know for various reasons but you know we still had a um it was like it was more of a courtesy meeting and i was like you know in actuality she's probably not even right for the part of so young in my film but i was like i have just like too much respect and like love for her work i was like i just have to know like would you do it because then i'll rewrite whatever needs to be <laughs> work but like yeah she i think yeah her work in that and oasis it you know like how many other actors in the history of cinema have had like two greater like first performances maybe like maybe like out you know maybe like al pacino or like you know, uh, uh, I don't even know who else, but yeah. yeah, like first time out of the gate. Yeah. And it's, it's like, and it's kind of unfortunate. I mean, and I think, you know, partially, you know, largely due to the Korean film industry now, but like, yeah, it's unfortunate that like, like we're not able to see her in as many roles that were as like exciting and, and diverse and and nuanced as she was doing it earlier in her career um i'm sure she's doing quite well yeah is it yeah is it just that she's aged out of the the sort of the pocket for for actors these days or is it maybe i mean i don't know, possibly part of it is her own choice but it does feel a little bit like i mean i i mean hollywood's the same right like it's like for women, you know, you hit that kind of like age 50 mark and all of a sudden, the you know, the kind of roles that are available, I think, just starts to really go down. Um, and yeah, and it's just unfortunate with her in Korea that she actually made this really amazing um, film, this comedy that she made. It's like very, it's quite autobiographical. I don't know if you've really? seen it. It's called, it's called like Woman Running or something. Um, the poster is her like, running in a, a red dress if you okay. ever get a chance to see it it is so great it's so great it's it's almost a kind of like a like a ricky gervais extras kind of feel but she's and it's like quite autobiographical i've heard but it's so it's hilarious and, and yeah it's funny because yeah. like her early roles were so intense and heavy but she, i think she's hilarious um, but I, yeah, I digress. Yeah. Oh no, um, here it is. It's a 2017 South Korean comedy drama yeah. consisting of three separate short films. She made at Chungang university as an adult film student. That's fascinating. I did not know that. I didn't even know that myself. Yeah. No, I think oh, the wow. last thing I would have seen her in was have been the handmaiden where she has a small part. Yeah. The, the part also amazing. 
Yeah. And I was also going to ask about, uh, make sure I get the pronunciation right, Seoul Kyunggu? Yeah, Seoul Kyunggu in Korean. It's a tough tough name to pronounce, yeah. I don't know that I've seen him in much of anything. Uh, I know he's been working constantly, but I just, I've been going through the list here and I, I don't think I've seen anything he's done for a while. Um, he's yeah, he's been in some great films, um, none of which were nearly as successful internationally, in my opinion, as Peppermint Candy or Oasis. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, let me hear. He was he's been. He, I mean, he's doing like a really great, diverse um, roles, even like to this day. Um, I'm a big fan, so I, I try to watch a lot of his movies. Um, but here, let me pull up the what was it called? Uh, um, there's a film that took place on an island. I, I it's tough because IMDb is in English. Mm-hmm. Oh, called in 2000, 2003, There's a film called. Um, Silmido. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's a great watch. Military thriller? Yeah, I would say so. Um, amazing casts. Like, it, you know, it's got some of the best Korean actors. And it's based on true story. And it's fantastic. And um, that was like in Korea. I think that was like the first film to reach a certain like um box office record at the time um but he's yeah he's that that's a great one that he was in um but yeah it's i guess he hasn't really been in anything that's done that's like made its way overseas um yeah the last I, thing of his that i recognized was the tidal wave movie high Day, which um that's 2009 now yeah, wow, that, that's a while ago. But he's yeah, he's just continued to work. It's just one of those things where he hasn't, yeah, as you say, he just hasn't broken out in international markets. But he is so good at capturing this specific kind of incoherent rage, this quality of anger that's always there, even when he's trying to be composed. There, mm-hmm. there are scenes when he's just lying very cool. still, and you can see the effort that he's making to stay still. Yeah. It's a it's such a remarkable performance. And it somehow to me it seems to embody so much of of what uh Lee will be doing in his future films too, where he's just shaping this emotional space that that covers all of all of Korea and all of humanity, but but just just captures it as one person. I don't even know if that makes any sense at all. It's this emotional vibe that he brings. And I still I'm kind of quietly in awe of this guy who decided to make movies you know, in his late thirties and started to go for it and just, you know, he was, um, he, cause he was a, he was a writer. He was he a novelist. Was a, yeah. And then just yeah, instantly, instantly became a filmmaker and, and does things that you cannot do in cold text. Like just found a completely different art to apply himself to. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you, I'm assuming you're a fan of his work. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you find that his films, his like sort of more recent films, do you prefer the more recent 
films or the earlier films or do you do you appreciate all of them in think, different ways yeah i mean i haven't seen i haven't seen greenfish in a really long time or oasis actually but um i think that the amazing thing about thinking about them is that they all do line up they all find mm-hmm. this sort of emotional continuity and his his techniques have evolved but they haven't really changed just his framing choices are always so smart about what we do and don't see. Um, mm-hmm. We did an episode on Secret Sunshine maybe a year ago, and it gave me the excuse to revisit it properly, which would it yeah. would have been the first time I'd seen it since like 2008. And it was so instructive because there's just the, there's this one shot that he he frames so beautifully in the church where every character we need to see will occupy the frame at some point, but they're never all together. And you just realize how isolated everyone is from one another. And it's just, it's not even the point of the scene. It's just a comment that the camera makes. And Mm -hmm. again, that's something you could not do. You could play with perspective on the page, but you need to see how separated everyone is and how isolated these characters feel. And it's just so subtle and poetic and, in all of his films, there are these tiny moments of kindness between characters, and they're almost always wasted. Secret Sunshine, I think, is the one where someone has a chance and takes it. It's the only time you get to see somebody make good on that promise. And well, poetry, I suppose, is a longer evolution of someone like pointing towards salvation. But I, I find his understanding of these tiny human moments that can change a person's life or, or destroy them that's novelistic like that's the kind of thing that a writer of of fiction of text literature can do but it's so hard to translate that onto the screen mm-hmm. you know you think about like the way louis mal handled uh a child glancing off to one side in over les enfants that changes the entire arc of someone else's life and then that he remembers forever this is like peppermint candy has that sort of weight to it over and over and over again but it's dependent on us filling in the blanks because of the way it's structured. We're just constantly character er, characterizing. We're constantly recontextualizing the, the moments we have just seen as the way the present is affecting the past or the way the, f- the past affects the future. And I it really wasn't until I watched it the second or even third time that I fully understood how it flows. And it's, it's just, he's such a natural that it almost makes me mad. <laughs> that he's so good at finding these emotional through lines. Yeah, I'm so curious, like how much of that is conscious and how much of it, how much of it he's aware of as mm-hmm. he's doing it, or if he, you know, is simply going by instinct, and then it comes together magically in the editing. I'm sure none of it's luck, um, but because yeah, I like, I only know what I how to do what I do. And I'm like, and I know how I work and I go like, how do I, how do I elevate this? How do I, how do I change my process to kind of, you know, do some of the things that he's done. And like, I don't know where it comes from. I don't like, what's the secret, you know, if there is one, and I, I am so curious, like everything you're saying, you're like, yeah. Like, did he know that? He must have, right? Like you, you can't, you can't do it by accident or did he find it in the edit? Did it make more sense if he told it backwards instead of forwards? I mean, was it always, you know, there is a version of this movie that starts the same way and then just jumps back to 
like 1979 and rolls forward 20 years yeah. instead of rolling backwards and it would still work. Yeah. But it's so much more tragic this way because the inevitability is there. Like you're seeing the mm -hmm. seeds of his destruction revealed one by one by one um, instead of mounting up there being, it's like an onion being put back together. Yeah. Like the layers are being yeah. restored. But there, there's a moment in Rice Boy Sleeps, like the last shot of the film is a deliberate echo of a line of dialogue, which is beautiful and poetic and says everything. And I'm obviously like that, you discovered that at some point, that's not in the edit, that's always where you're going. But you had to write that and structure it too, right? Was that always going to happen? Was it instinctive? Or did you discover that that sort of rhyme in the in the process of writing it? I found it in the writing. I mean, the 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 ending, the last big chunk of the ending, that was very specific in the writing. And 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 we didn't have time to shoot any more than what we could use. Oh wow. Um because we, we had so little time to shoot. Um so like all of our Korea stuff, we only had four days to shoot. And so like we were like there was no time to waste. Um a lot of those scenes at the end, that last sequence at the mountain, everything mm -hmm. to the very end. A lot of those scenes, we only had time to do one take each. And so it was almost like we were, you know, with a small little splinter crew and we were with the actors and we were basically just kind of like doing the trip and shooting it in chronological order as the sun was, you know, as the sun was going down. So we had to catch that sunset um, and we really didn't have. I mean, backup plans. That was it. That was our final day. So we had that was the most specific I had to get about the writing, the you know, the blocking, the the framing, the camera moves, um, and then, yeah, because I you know I had a I had a version of that ending where it's like it ended with a narration because I thought it would be good, and someone told me it would work nicely if I bookended it with the narration. And I wrote this big monologue at the end as they're walking down, and, and then I did a table read of it. And people, you know, the like the response from everybody was like, "That's the ending," but kill that terrible narration. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just a visual alone. It's like that final line, and then just a visual is enough. Give the audience some credit. Like we're good. Um, but yeah, because I, you know, it's. It, I, I don't know if too many people like, I mean, not many people bring this up, but you know, to me, it's like, it's about these two characters trying to find their own home, find their home. Um, and the first, first thing that we hear the boy say to his mom is I want to go home. Mm -hmm. And then the last line is, you know, I'm spoiling it, but the last line is let's go home. And it's just like, that's really what the whole movie is about is like the two of them finally discovering where home is and, and, and deciding to go together. Um, and it's not about the life and death of it. It's, you know, um, and so that was, yeah, that was very deliberate. Um, there's a lot of things that were deliberate, you know, and and thinking. It's interesting because at the, at the script stage, I go, because I'm, I'm so influenced by a lot of these great films like Peppermint Candy. And I go like, they seem so specific and so like certain of these choices and you know and so then i i would write these things in i go yeah like that's great like that's that's like the brilliant moment and then you i watch it and i go eh, just kind of comes and goes it's not nearly as good as i thought it was going to be and then there's certain bits where 
you know, I didn't really put too much weight on it, you know, and like, I didn't even really give it too much thought. I just kind of go by instinct. And those are the ones, those are the moments that I can see my, even myself and people, people do point out and go like, yeah, those are the special moments. And so for me, I'm like, it's like, I don't really know, you know, sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong. I think I'm wrong most times, but so then, so then I'm curious, like people like Lee Chang Dong and, you know, all these other great filmmakers. I'm like, are we like all in the same boat or like, do they have a, a, a secret technique that I'm not aware of? Yeah. I have so, I've heard so many people say they found it in the edit or they found it on the set or they found it in the moment that I, I truly believe that nobody has the formula. Because yeah. they're all capable, and maybe that's the trick that you leave yourself open to being surprised mm-hmm. and and discovering things that aren't on the page or that aren't in your head when you set out to do it. And, you know, you hear those stories about how Hitchcock checked out when he was on set because he wasn't interested in watching the actors. He'd already made the movie in his head with the storyboards and the writing. But that's that. I think that accounts for the coldness that a lot of his films have. I mean, I love them; they're wonderlands, but they're not emotionally gripping. They're just they're playful and fun in a different way. The, the films made by people who are looking for things after they finish shooting and, and still mm-hmm. exploring things in the edit, those are the mm-hmm. movies that I think that haunt you and, and just stay with you because there's a humanity to them. There's something alive in there mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. we are looking for just the same way the filmmakers were when they were doing the, the final edits. Yeah. I don't know. It's such a weird I, thing to do to just sort of point yourself at a at a, a screen and say, I see this in there, but that's what we all do. Yeah. And yeah, and like I'm coming, I mean, I'm sure you, I mean you've seen so many films. Um far too many, really. But yeah, yeah. And as and as I see more and more films, I go, wow, I think even though there is this umbrella of um what we call movies or even cinema but even within that there's like so many sub categories of what a movie is and ultimately what is i think what's really debatable is what is even the 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 purpose of a movie or cinema i think i think the average moviegoer you know might lean towards it having to be entertaining that it is a source of entertainment. And although I do think that when something is entertaining, um, the greater message is e- a little bit easier to be absorbed. Um, sure, yeah. And then also even what is entertaining is entirely subjective. Um, some people find Transformers movies entertaining. But some people find like, um, you know, a... a films entertaining like i do mm-hmm. while those films to some others are just a, a opportunity to take a nap yeah it's still and, you know if you want to be soothed there are ways to do that but yeah yeah i just i've learned over the years to just try to accept the movie on its own terms and as far as the transformers movies go they don't need me so it's fine you know you're gonna make all that noise and i'll just i'll just think about what i'm gonna do afterwards but the um the films that offer me something of themselves that have some semblance of not a message but a heart even if it's Mm -hmm. cynical even if it's i mean even if it's something like burning which is about 
the emptiness at the heart of that story and how you could never really know anything about anyone's motivations. Yeah. Um, but I love that because it's about exploring that mystery and exploring that space. And, and Peppermint Candy is the reverse. Peppermint Candy tells you literally everything about this person over, mm. over two decades of his life and how the, the place that made him was the place that destroys him. Um, intentionally or not, that's, that's what happens. And if you read it as a history of a nation, that's, that's a perfectly valid reading and it's a very vivid one. And if you read it as an individual tragedy of somebody who could not handle the society that he exists within, then that's also a fascinating and awful thing to, to deconstruct. But I don't doubt for a second that, that Lee has a perspective and, and that there's a reason that we see everything he's showing us. Right, like it's it's made by someone. It's not made by a committee. It's mm-hmm. someone's perspective that's being put out for us to interpret. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm just I'm. Those are the movies, and and I felt the same way with Rice Boy Sleeps. Like you made this movie because you wanted to show me this specific thing, and it's not just happening the way, say, a Transformers movie does. Because you know it's the fifth one, and we have to fight on a on the desert now. Those films don't offer me anything to connect to other yeah. than the fact that they're perpetuating themselves mm-hmm. and and a movie about people is always going to be more compelling to me although that said i really love the godzilla films so what am i going to do well i mean somebody i was talking to recently from la uh um you you just i mean he's this person i think was an agent and so like this person obviously sees a lot of movies too and and mm-hmm. just said you know um he was asian as well and he said you know it's like watch film i really liked it said to me it was the exact opposite of everything everywhere all at once that's interesting (laughs) and i was like yeah it's it's not everything all at once it's just like one thing you know it's about one family it's like one moment and you know because that film it's like i mean the editing is like insane and and incredible um but it's so it's just it's so much mm. yeah it's <laughs> designed to overwhelm right yeah and it's just so much and i go okay like there is a place in this world for that but i go i gotta believe as someone who made something that is the opposite of that there's gotta be a place in our industry and in place like in our you know uh, um society for these types of storytelling as well where it's not you know fast-paced editing but there's no editing and it's just it gives you space and time to be with the characters um and so yeah i it's it's yeah i try to i try to remember that and go not get too discouraged and and not try to mimic other people just to get a film made or just to get a film sold um to go you know just because i want to make movies doesn't mean that it has to fit into the sort of the, the bigger within the bigger umbrella it can be you know find its own subcategory like so many of these great films have and and i gotta believe that they you know because different filmmakers have different intentions there must be you know they must all have their own process and i suppose it's okay to have my own my thanks to anthony shim whose moving drama rice boy sleeps is in theaters across canada right now and opening at the Tiff Bell Lightbox this Friday. Thanks also to Nicola Pender. 
She knows what she did. Anthony's not on Twitter, but you can keep track of Rice Boy Sleeps by following its distributor, Game Theory Films. All one word. And while Peppermint Candy is currently out of print on DVD in North America, I'm hoping that new 4K restoration we mentioned means we'll be seeing it back in circulation fairly soon. In the meantime, Secret Sunshine, Poetry, and Burning are all pretty easy to find. Go catch up on those! As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.